Okay, uh, welcome to another Monday. We've made it a whole month, almost six weeks into the semester. That's a pretty good start. Uh, this morning, this picture is a long way from here. It's also more water than we have almost in the state of South Dakota. Anybody know where that is? That is definitely Niagara Falls. And when you're close enough to get the picture like that, it's loud as all that water just goes over the edge, cascading down. It's, uh, it's really quite a sight. So if you get a chance, go there. Apparently they stopped it one side of the river the other day or this summer and cleaned up a bunch of stuff from the falls and then diverted it over to the other side of the falls. I mean, they can't really stop the whole river, but they can uh, give a chance to clean some of the garbage up that was coming up to the edges of the falls. And they found some interesting stuff. But uh, if you get a chance, head yourself over north of uh, Buffalo, New York, up to Niagara Falls. Now, I believe we were talking about protein and casein micelle uh, models last week. And I got to the last model, which was Wallstra. And I believe that's where I stopped and I did not begin on the serum proteins. Is that true? Okay. So then today, today, probably Wednesday and maybe into Friday, we'll be talking about serum proteins. The serum proteins, that portion which do not precipitate at the isoelectric point of pH 4.6. That was the original distinction between the caseins and the serum protein. We still hold with that, but now what subdivisions can we actually encounter within the serum proteins? They're not all identical. There are several of them. We're gonna talk about them in order of prevalence. The primary serum protein is beta-lactoglobulin, BLG. I'm perfectly happy with you using that as an abbreviation, unless you really like to write out beta-lactoglobulin all the time, unless you've been practicing your Greek lettering to put a nice beta in there. BLG is perfectly fine as far as a way for you to annotate that. Beta-lactoglobulin as a serum protein contains about 162 amino acid residues. The caseins we've been talking about have been between about 197 upwards to 212, 215 amino acids. So in this case, this serum protein is, is a much shorter primary chain. 
only 162 amino acids long. So it's gonna be a little smaller, a little less in its overall molecular weight. In general terms, beta-lactoglobulin represents 50% of the total serum proteins found in bovine milk. When you translate that to the total of all the protein, that's roughly 9%. Okay. Caseins, depending upon stage in lactation, represent between 78 and 82% of the protein. Therefore, the serum fractions are going to be between 18 and 22%, depending upon stage of lactation. If you figure it at 18% and half of that is beta-lactoglobulin, you get to the 9%. That's where the magic math numbers come from. They really are not that difficult to encounter. This... This fact right here, the fact that there is no beta-lactoglobulin present in human milk is important. This is one of the primary reasons that a pediatrician would not recommend that you feed cow's milk directly to an infant less than six months in age because they have not developed any capacity at that point in time to deal with the protein that their system cannot recognize. Okay. Over time, you get a little exposure, you'll start to get some enzymes, you'll, you'll begin to have methods to be able to deal with the beta-lactoglobulin, to be able to break it down into its individual amino acids and actually digest it. But early on, a human infant has no way to deal with that beta-lactoglobulin. So we're not gonna recommend that you feed cow's milk to an infant. That's the primary reason right there. They can't deal with the protein fraction. When we start to look at all the amino acid composition of this beta-lactoglobulin, different than all of those caseins out there, beta-lactoglobulin is definitely going to have some sulfur-containing amino acids, more than any of the caseins did. It has five, and that's rather unusual that it's got an odd number that's gonna create an interesting situation where two of those cysteines will form an intermolecular disulfide bond. Distinct loops in the structure, forming a very definite secondary and tertiary structure. But it always leaves one free sulfhydryl group to start creating intermolecular bonding. So beta-lactoglobulin likes to attach to something else, anything else that happens to be going by, basically, 
that also has a free sulfhydro. So that creates an interesting set of interactions because it has that odd number of cysteines. That makes sense? Two of them, or four, making two pairs, intramolecular, creating secondary and tertiary folds and structures, but that odd one out always participates in an intermolecular bond. It attaches with some other molecule to try and make itself stable. <clears throat> Beta-lactoglobulin, as it says in its name, is a globular protein. Okay. Because of the amino acid sequence, it has very distinct patterns of folds and twists so that instead of being a nice long strand like a beta casein, beta-lactoglobulin folds and twists and becomes a nice tight little ball a little globule of protein, okay? Very compact. How many softball players do I have? Baseball players, anybody? Can you imagine what a baseball mitt looks like or a softball mitt, right? Got a thumb out there, you got the fingers, you've got the webbing in between, right? If you actually look at the X-ray diffraction 3D structure of a beta-lactoglobulin, it looks like a softball glove, partially open. It's got an open space. It's got a flat spot acting like a web. It's got this outside part like the thumb and it's got the fingers. And that becomes important because in the center of the palm is where two those two disulfide bonds are. The free one is up here in the finger of the glove. What makes that interesting is that as heat is applied, you start to break the disulfide bonds. You break the top one in order and you start to open up the glove. When you're gonna try and catch something with a softball or baseball glove, do you want your glove fully open? Do you want it shut? You want it partially open, right? So that it can snap shut whenever the ball hits it. If it's fully open, it can't catch. It's sort of like hitting a wall. But if it's partially open, it can grab things and shut down on them. Beta-lactoglobulin, because of that structure, is a scavenger. It looks for free radicals. Things that could induce oxidation in a sample and grabs them. 
So from a milk quality standpoint, it's important to understand that that structure, that tertiary structure is hugely important to our ability to either keep our product from oxidizing or not. And that's all dependent on how much temperature we put into the system and whether we partially open the glove or fully open the glove. If we put in too much temperature and we fully open the glove, it cannot function as an oxygen scavenger. If we put in a little bit of energy, start to open the glove, it then can go out and scavenge free radicals for us and keep our product from oxidizing or minimize how long it reduces how long it's going to take to actually start the oxidation and it minimizes the overall oxidation because of that tertiary structure that's kind of like a baseball mat. Does that make sense? So it's kind of cool when you, when you actually look at its structure and you think of what it does, it's opening and shutting like a baseball glove. Additionally, beta-lactoglobulin contains no phosphorus. What can we infer about the amino acid composition? if beta-lactoglobulin contains no phosphorus. When we were talking about the caseins, which amino acids present in a casein always had phosphates associated? Serine. The presence of serine as an amino acid, you have a phosphoserine, and now you have the capacity to have a calcium phosphate bridge within your casein micelle. If beta-lactoglobulin contains no phosphorus, it therefore has no serine in its amino acid strand. It also, because it has no phosphorus, will not be participating in formation of calcium phosphate bonds. Does that make sense? So it seems like a, just a little data point, contains no phosphorus, but there's a lot of things that you can know and associate based on that one little statement. Doesn't have phosphorus, therefore it doesn't have serine. It also will not create calcium phosphate bridges. Most of the interactions that a beta-lactoglobulin is involved with revolve around the fact that it has those five cysteines within its primary strand, creating the opportunity to have free sulfhydrals or disulfide bonds. That ability to have intra and intermolecular interactions based on one specific amino acid is going to be the greatest influencer from a process standpoint of what beta-lactoglobulin does for us.
influenced by the sulfhydryls on the cysteines. Having said that, if one looks at bonds, chemical bonds, some are easy to break, some are more difficult to break. They're energy dependent. As you put energy into a system, certain bonds will break first. One of the first bond structures that typically will be broken is a disulfide bond. So this beta-galactoglobulin has all these potential interactions, but they're also very easily changed because it doesn't take that much energy input to start changing how the beta-galactoglobulin is going to behave. Just a little bit of heat starts to stretch those disulfide bonds. A little bit more, one of them breaks. Well, in the way it's structured, the first one to break is the one up at the top of the palm. The one at the bottom is buried further in the globule. It takes more energy to get in to finally break that second bond. So they don't break at the same time, but they're heat dependent. The more heat we put in, the more we alter whether they're already an intramolecular disulfide bond or opened up and now available to create intermolecular disulfide bonds. Once that starts, now we start to have molecules clump together, aggregate together, and when they start to get too large during that aggregation, they precipitate or they initiate a gel formation. Where we usually see this would be a product like a UHT creamer, where it will actually thicken and start to gel not because we had any heat impact on the caseins, but we, because we had heat impact on the beta-lactoglobulin. You with me? If you think about it, when something is in a nice tight little ball, it's more difficult to interact with the interior, right? Enzymes, proteolytic enzymes, proteolysis, attacking a protein, will attack where they can get. Well, if the only place they can get to is the surface of this nicely tight and compact globule, there's not actually that many amino acid pairings right at the surface. But because they're so tight, 
and the molecular spacing is such, the enzymes can't get in there and start to break them down. So when you have a substance undergoing proteolysis in milk, it's usually not the beta-lactoglobulin. It's more likely to be one of the caseins because they're of a more open structure and it's easier for an enzyme to get into the proper point, snip, make or lice part of the chain off. But because it's nice and tightly compacted together, it's relatively protected from the action of enzymes. The overall pH of the solution will have several dramatic impacts on how that beta-lactoglobulin is going to interact with other molecules, okay? It's very much pH dependent in its associations. And this is where life starts to get fun, at least I think. You may not appreciate this near as much as I do, but that's okay. Between a pH of 1.8 and a pH of 3.5, this acidic or basic? Very much acidic, right? Beta-lactic globulin exists primarily as a monomer, a single 162 amino acid strand folded up into a little ball, okay? It's not interacting with a lot of other things when that pH is in a very acidic environment. Okay? Do we ever encounter this level of pH in a typical dairy system? No. Even the most acidic yogurt we might make, we probably aren't down to a pH of 3.5. We would have to be adding straight up acids to get there. Very unusual condition. However, between 3.5 and 5.4, We hit this a lot as we bring the pH down when we're culturing sour cream or yogurt or making cheese. We come into this pH range very often. Between 3.5 and 5.4, beta-lactoglobulin almost always associates itself with another beta-lactoglobulin. It forms a dimer, which led to the belief that beta-lactoglobulin always only existed in that form. Because when did we harvest most of this serum protein? 
in Hui. We were collecting acids at Hui off of a vat of cottage cheese. What was the pH? Around 4.6, right smack in the middle of this. We collect it up, we find this molecule, and we believed for decades that the molecular weight of beta-lactoglobulin was 36,000. It wasn't until we started examining it across other pH ranges that we found out that within this range, it was in a dimer form. We get more acidic, or clearly towards a more basic composition, it reverted to the monomer with a molecular weight of 18,000. It's compared to most of the caseins around that 23,000. Why do we care about that? We can use that molecular weight in part to base filtration membrane cutoffs and start to separate those things. So it's a dimer between 3.5 and 5.4. There is an isoelectric point for beta-lactoglobulin. It's 5.18. For the casein micelles in general, it's 4.6. When the casein micelles got to 4.6, they were no longer stable enough to stay in solution. Somewhat unique, beta-lactoglobulin has a point at which there is no charge difference, but that does not initiate a precipitation from the solution. If you held a solution of purified beta-lactoglobulin at pH 5.18, it would stay in solution, but there would be no discernible electric charge density. That's kind of weird, but that's one of the characteristics of what beta-lactoglobulin is and how it's going to behave. So it has an isoelectric point which does not initiate a precipitation. Caseins have an isoelectric point which does precipitate. So I had a fairly broad range at the top, 3.5 to 5.4. I have a dimer. Well, if I refine that range, when I go from 3.5 to 4.2 to 5.4, at a pH of 3.5, I have a dimer. At a pH of 4.2, I have an octamer eight individual beta-lactoglobulins associating together. By the time I get back up to 5.4, I'm back to a dimer. So the size that the beta-lactoglobulin is most likely to be changes fairly dramatically as we change the pH of the solution. It's a monomer below 
as we move from 3.5 to 4.2, it goes from a dimer to an octamer. 4.2 back to 5.4, it goes from an octamer back to a dimer. And then as we get above the neutral point, it's gonna go back to a monomer. Why do we care? For decades, one of the concerns in product development was can we change the lipid level of the product without dramatically impacting the mouthfeel. If we can isolate beta-lactoglobulin at a pH of 4.2, when it's the octamer, it is now of a size that from the perception on your tongue, it's perceived to be similar to a lipid. So we can use a protein to replace a lipid in a textural standpoint. That was huge. But it took us a long time to figure out where does this occur? It's not universal. It's a very specific point along the scale where we can create the correct conditions that we harvest that beta-lactoglobulin as an octamer, and now we can use it as a fat mimetic. But if we didn't sort of understand how the whole series of reactions is gonna occur, we would not have been able to come up with that discovery. As we continue moving up to a more and more neutral towards basic, we go through the dimer back to a monomer stage. Do you encounter very many dairy products that are actually above seven in a pH? Almost never. It's a nice thing to know about. Is it something we're actually going to encounter? Not very often. But those conditions between 6.6 .6 down to about 4.6, we encounter those a lot of the time. Anytime we're making a cultured dairy product, anytime we introduce a lactic culture to convert lactose into lactic acid, we will go through that range from 6.6 .6 down to 4.6 or lower. So we need to understand what that does to the protein fractions. This part, it's kind of interesting, but we don't get a dairy product at a pH of 9.2. It's, it would be very impractical. As we continue though, moving that pH towards neutral and into the basic side. We increase the reactivity of that fifth cysteine, that one free sulfhydryl that we had, 
plus we've changed the ionization on the end carboxyl group, the end of the chain, and we changed the way the whole molecule is going to participate and interact. If we leave the system above a pH of eight too long, we begin to rupture those intermolecular disulfide bonds. Where could we use that to our advantage? When might we want to start to proteolize things? If you have a protein film on a tank, how do you get a protein film off of a tank? Do you pick an acid cleaner or a basic cleaner, a caustic cleaner? This tells you right here that if you get that pH above eight, which you would get if you used a caustic cleaner, you can start to proteolize all the parts of the protein film and break it down. So it becomes important to know this part of the reaction if you're gonna try and clean your equipment. How do I get that protein to stop the interactions, to break it down into small enough parts that I can clearly lift it off and move it away? So all of that is dependent upon the pH of the system. Time is important. If the reaction occurs over a short period of time, say, three to five seconds, and then you change the conditions back, often those types of reactions are reversible. Say, for example, you were inputting heat and you broke that first disulfide bond, opening up that softball mitt. Well, if you only had that heat applied for 12, 15 seconds, it wasn't long enough to break the second disulfide bond. And the system can heal itself and return. But if I did that for a minute, I would break the second bond, allow it to completely unravel, and now I can't go back. So it's dependent upon the overall amount of time, whether or not the reaction can reverse or remains in whatever the new denatured form might be for the protein. So, depending upon what we're trying to do to our product, we always or typically have a minimum temp 
time-temperature relationship, which is pasteurization. But it, if we pasteurize or held it at an exposure temperature longer than what's required for the pathogens, we also start to change the proteins, right? And that's important to remember. We want to minimize typically our impact on the proteins while still achieving our goal of the pathogens. Because if we go too far, we change conditions where we cannot go back. But with a small enough time frame, we can return, proteins will remain viable, and yet we still can get rid of the pathogens. When we open up those disulfide bonds and expose the free sulfhydryls, they now are able to react with other free sulfhydryls. If we have enough of them present and they can find each other because we give them a long enough period of time, they'll start aggregation intermolecular instead of going back to intramolecular. So instead of rehealing the initial protein, they unfold that initial protein, change its secondary and tertiary structure, and now have it so it starts to stick to other proteins and aggregate together. We start too much aggregation. The molecule gets too big. We can't hold it up in solution. It creates a gel matrix. It precipitates. It comes out of being freely in solution. Denaturation, simply put, it's a change of the structure of a protein. Okay? Many things that we do in interacting with this solution can do that. High shear can disrupt the structure of the protein. You put it through a homogenizer, we may disrupt some of it, especially if it's opened up and expanded a little bit and it's sort of fragile. A lot of heat can open it up and disrupt it. Changing the pH can also. Anything that opens up, expands, starts to make those bonds less strength, strong, changing from the native structure of that protein would be considered as denaturation. Aggregation occurs only after denaturation. Aggregation cannot precede denaturation. Make sure when you're talking about that in a series of reactions, you don't say that it aggregated before it denatured because it, it's not possible. It must have had some change in its native conformation prior to its being able to start 
some type of aggregation. So what the causative agent was for the denaturation influences the types of aggregates we get, the properties of those aggregates, and whether or not we get to have a substance that behaves like a fat mimetic or not, if that's our intention. On Wednesday, I'm gonna go through the three classes of aggregation, and then we'll move on into alpha-lactalbumin. Any questions, any thoughts? You know everything there is to know about beta-lactoglobulin, or we've touched the surface? The answer is we've touched the surface but hopefully enough that you start to understand how the interactions are gonna occur. All right, Let's see if I can get